Sapor, it's very good to speak to you. Thank you very much. Can you start by talking about the, the big wins for the treaty in COP28? Sure. Uh, you know, we, we walked into COP26 with one country and a big idea. And here at, you know, momentum has been growing throughout the year with more and more countries interested. But here at COP, we had four countries join the call for the fossil fuel treaty. And really critically, we had Colombia join the call for the fossil fuel treaty with a really, I think, historic speech by President Petro, where he talks about how countries who are producing fossil fuels and really dependent on fossil fuel exports for a significant amount of their GDP need to be committing to stop expansion. But in order to do that, they're going to need a plan, a global plan with international cooperation in order to support them in managing the wind down. And that's why they're calling for the fossil fuel treaty. Okay. And bound into a lot of these talks and when we were saying stop fossil fuels, phase it out, et cetera, et cetera, we are, uh, the, the thing is, is that these countries make a lot of money from doing this. And a lot of the poorer countries, they're locked in and it's hard for them to get out of producing for the debt reasons. That's true. There are a lot of countries right now who are like, let's take Ecuador, for example, expanding oil drilling in the heart of the Amazon just to feed their debt. And, and so they can't, even if they want to, and recognize the climate urgency of stopping the expansion of fossil fuel production, they actually can't. And, and, they, and they're going to need um, uh, different international cooperation and global governance mechanisms, debt relief, uh, tax agreements, trade agreements, in order, to, in order to shift the structure so that they're not being forced into the expansion of fossil fuels. And how ready are we for that conversation at the moment or for that to start taking place? This is a conversation that's long overdue. The fact is that for 30 years, we've been having a conversation about fighting climate change without talking about the cause of climate change, fossil fuels. And these issues are complicated. But what's not is that 86% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere come from three products, oil, gas, and coal. And for 30 years, we've only been talking about reaching agreements on who gets to pollute and how much. We don't have any agreements or international cooperation on who gets to produce. And what we build today will be what we use tomorrow. Yeah, so there is this link. And there's also the link between producers and the people they're selling to. Is there more we can do now to almost <laughs> undermine the production side by transition to, I suppose, electrification and things like this or renewables? Yeah, look, there is no question that we need to dramatically scale up renewables and electrification. And in fact, renewables are now cheaper than fossil fuels. But the fact is, even if we get a great commitment, which it looks like we will here, to a tripling of renewables, it's not... The atmosphere doesn't care whether we're building renewables. The atmosphere cares whether we're still building fossil fuels. So we don't just need to build renewable energy. We need to be displacing fossil fuel energy. And that's what we're not doing right now. We're not, we don't have a lot of national policy or international agreements on stopping the expansion of production. So the, UN, the United Nations Environment Program report, the production gap report, just came out again this year, and it said we're on track to produce 110% more oil, gas, and coal than we can ever burn if we want to stay below a 1.5 degree world. So we already have enough. We, have, we already have enough oil, gas, and coal on the surface of the planet or under construction to use while we manage the transition. In fact, even if we used all of what we already have under production, it would take us past two degrees. So we're spending all this political capital, financial capital, intellectual capital to dig up stuff that we know we can't burn or it will burn us. 
And that's why there's so much momentum behind the fossil fuel treaty, because we need a companion agreement to the Paris Agreement, which is much more focused on the science and emissions reduction. We need an agreement focused on managing the decline of production. And, and it won't replace the Paris Agreement, it will help us meet the Paris Agreement. But do you think, um, in a way, that's the problem here? That's the problem why we're always disappointed by these texts, because mm. the production is already baked in. And that the UK, yes. we're sort of making scapegoats out of Saudi, but really the well, you know, the, the people at the front, like Algebra, but the Brits are as bad, the Canadians are as bad, the US is bad, worse, the North, actually, yeah, much worse. If you look at the planned expansion of production for in the next five years, the, it's, the far majority of it is in the US and Canada, UK, Norway, Australia. These are countries that are saying they're climate leaders, and then they're dramatically expanding production and, and, and approving new projects all the time. It doesn't make any sense. And... And I, you know, I think this is a result of a strategy. We know it is from the Exxon documents that have been revealed in litigation and court cases around the world in the last year. This has been a strategy by the fossil fuel industry for 30 years to make their products invisible. And the great thing about this COP is we pulled back the curtain and we dragged fossil fuels center stage. So finally, after 30 years, we're having the right conversation. Okay. Thank you to all YouTube and Patreon members for supporting this series which will be running all through 2024. Your support means this work can continue. A reminder that you can also pre-order my book Cop Out, How Governments Have Failed the People on Climate from the link in the notes. Cop Out takes the reader deep into the blue zone to reveal what lies between the rhetoric of world leaders and the scientific realities we are being left to face. Thank you. Okay, so would you say that's a positive to being here? Absolutely. In. And next year in Azerbaijan, how, what did you think of that decision? Look, having this conversation in the belly of the beast, great, bring it. We need to, because we've been pretending that we can have a conversation by doing this modeling and, and, and promising these technologies that are not viable at scale and planting more forests, and therefore we can just increase the problem and keep approving more oil drilling and fracking and coal mines. Well, it's not working. Every year, emissions go up instead of down, and every year we wonder why it's not working. Economists would say, we're trying to cut with one half of the scissors, just the demand but not the supply. We're finally having a conversation about supply, and hopefully it will help us actually constrain making the problem bigger, and it will save lives. Because, you know, it's never too late. I hear people saying, but it's too late. You know, we're already going to reach 1.5, and it's too late. Every ton of carbon we save from going into the atmosphere right now will save lives. So every project we stop, every fossil fuel project, those are future lives. And that's our job right now. Okay. And you say we're in the belly of the beast, but the draft text re uh, released yesterday was pretty disastrous. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was the bile of the beast. But the bile of the beast, that's well said. There's another uh, text coming out today. Do you think that the response, I mean, it was... Got a very strong response, and I've had young people almost pretty much in tears saying, "I've got no future." And not, then you not, come back to yeah. you come back to this text and everything you've said, which is totally rational if you actually want to live on a survivable <laughs> planet. But these guys don't appear very rational. So, how do the countries who are signing up, who are enlightened enough to say, "Yeah, we need to phase this out." How do they um, respond to things like this text? What are you hearing? You know, look, first of all, what's really interesting is that every country here knows. Every country here knows we need to phase out fossil fuels. 
and they know we need to do it quickly. But what we're seeing is that the major producing countries all want to be the last barrel sold. So they all want words in there that allow them to increase production while they're encouraging the world uh, to decrease emissions. It's, it's absurd. And I think it is entirely possible that we'll see a stronger text. You know, I don't know. I don't have a magic wand or a, a crystal ball. But the fact is that it wasn't, there were not only uh, outrage from youth and civil society, but we saw some incredibly strong statements from countries on the floor last night who were devastated. You know, the small island nations referring to this text as a death sentence. But, you know, we even heard some strong statements from, from other countries, from Australia and other countries saying that they would accept a phase out of fossil fuel language. The fact is, before this text came out, the majority of countries on the floor here said they would support a phase out of fossil fuels. So this text, this text was written by OPEC. And, and whether or not we'll see a change today, I don't know. But even if we don't, the fact that we have a text that says fossil fuels, even the words, the fact that we have a text that also says production and not just emissions, these are wins. And these are what OPEC was scared about. Oh, a couple of days ago, there was a secret memo leaked that OPEC had written to, to, to heads of state. That kind of intervention is unprecedented. And what it shows is they're terrified. They're terrified of the conversation around production. And in the memo, they said, you cannot talk about production. You must just talk about emissions. This will have an unprecedented impact on the future of fossil fuels. And they're right. Just the fact that we've had this conversation here, and we're going to get some of the right words in the text, is going to send market signals around the world that the era of fossil fuels is over. And what we're witnessing here at COP, this is the last gasp of the fossil fuel industry. Okay. And you don't think it's also a, sort of a reflection somewhat on Al Jabeiro's president being quite weak with OPEC in some respects, if he's willing to put that stuff out, see how it gets handled on a first release. Look, President Al Jaber was in a very difficult position, of course. He has been trying to create the conversation. Let's not forget, he was the first COP president to talk about needing a phase down of fossil fuels. Um, so, look, he's also an oil CEO. So it is what it is. Um, but he has been attempting to create the conversation here. And if he is a good president, then we will see him ensuring that the, that, the, that the text reflects the concerns of the majority of nations. Okay. But the bottom line is you're saying that this is really approaching a, a bit of a dirty fight out at the very end of fossil fuels in terms of wording and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But we have kicked open the door. Or some would say we've propped open the Overton window. This is a, this is a shift. It's a massive shift after 30 years in climate policy and negotiations and debate. Scientists have been talking about keep it in the ground since, you know, maybe 2014 in the ecologist and the nature, you know, the Paul Eakins work, etc. And, and, but now this year, it's become a, a mainstream debate about the future of oil, gas, and coal, not just burning it, but producing it. And I think that that is going to have I think that this COP is a historic COP because of that. Okay, just to end on, you're Canadian, I'm British, we come from villainous countries. What's the role of civil society in terms of trying to help push this agenda, do you think, of, of change, accelerate? 
the, the role of civil society is, is critical. It has been always in social movements like this. It couldn't be more critical at this moment in history. I mean, I'm Canadian. My country has been on fire for six months. And, you know, a northern country. Right now, we should be in the streets. We should be calling our elected officials. We should be engaging in every way we can and making it simple. Say no to abated fossil fuels. Say no to all of this jargon and offsets and CCS. Is your government expanding new fossil fuel projects or not? Are they putting more money into a safer, cleaner future in renewable energy electrification? Or are they still doing fossil fuel subsidies? Make it simple for them and make it simple for the people around you to engage with you. Excellent. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much. It's been great to speak to you. Thank you to all YouTube and Patreon members for supporting this series which will be running all through 2024. Your support means this work can continue. A reminder that you can also pre-order my book Cop Out, How Governments Have Failed the People on Climate from the link in the notes. Cop Out takes the reader deep into the blue zone to reveal what lies between the rhetoric of world leaders and the scientific realities we are being left to face. Thank you.